The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I'm a physician. I was trained in Britain. I'm now retired from medical practice, but I'm still working in healthcare, helping family caregivers. Family caregivers are the people who go on providing care to family members when all the professional caregivers, like I used to be, have gone home. I'm an activist for family caregiving, which explains the name of the show, Family Caregivers Unite. Now, our topic today is, is this. We're going to talk about turning vision challenges into visible successes. So first of all, what do we mean by vision challenges? Well, these may mean you're being able to see nothing at all, not even enough light to distinguish day from night. Or you're being able to see just a little light and maybe some shadows. Or you're being able to see very unclearly. Or you're needing a lot of help with things that you need to see and need to see clearly, but can't see clearly. Vision challenges affect people of all ages worldwide and in very large numbers. Maybe as many as 40 million North Americans are affected by vision challenges. Sometimes vision challenges are inherited. Sometimes they're acquired from obvious causes like accidents. Sometimes they're related to age. And sometimes why they happen isn't well understood or even known. So to talk about turning these challenges into visible successes, we have two guests, Melanie Cooper and Dr. Stuart Wittenstein. And I'm going to first of all introduce Melanie Cooper. Melanie is the founder of the Connect Learning Center, which opened in Toronto, Canada a few days ago. She's a visually impaired teacher who has experienced many obstacles along the road she's traveled. Her story is that she became legally blind while a 21-year-old university student when she suffered a massive stroke that left her completely paralyzed on the left side. She had to interrupt her fourth year at the university to undergo extensive rehabilitation. Throughout her rehab, she maintained a positive attitude determined to fulfill her dream to be a teacher. For her retraining in basic life skills, she attended a program provided by the Canadian National Institute for the Blind. It was this program, she says, that changed her life. Then she returned to Teachers College at York University, where she was the first legally blind teacher to graduate in Ontario. 
Subsequently, and she reports this sadly, the Canadian National Institute for the Blind's life-changing program and others like it were eliminated because of lack of funding. And because so many others, like Melanie, were deprived of the ongoing support and services which had been so vital to her, she vowed to one day establish a life skills training program for adults with disabilities. And this is how the Connect Learning Center came to be. Now, our other guest is Dr. Stuart Wittenstein. Stuart is an experienced teacher and administrator in programs for children who are blind or visually impaired in Texas, New York, New Jersey, and California. He's in his 15th year as superintendent of the California School for the Blind. He's president of the Council of Schools for the Blind, a national organization of superintendents of schools for blind learners. He's co-editor of the textbook, Collaborative Assessment, Working with Students Who Are Blind or Visually Impaired, which is used in preparing teaching teachers to evaluate students who are blind. He's the chair of the Editorial Advisory Committee of the Journal of Visual Impairment and Blindness, which is the international journal of record in the blindness field. He's a strong advocate for Braille literacy. He taught Braille at Hunter College and Teachers College at Columbia University. He's a prolific writer about specialized services for individuals with visual impairments. He's a past president of the Division on Visual Impairments of the Council for Exceptional Children. And in 1994, he received the Division's Outstanding Dissertation of the Year Award. And in 2006, he received the Division's Distinguished Service Award. Melanie and Stuart, Melanie and Stuart welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Gordon. Thank you, Gordon. Good okay. to be here. Great. Now, I'm going to start with a question for Melanie first, please. Melanie, please tell us about your experience with vision loss and the challenges it created for you. Sure. Well, I was sighted for 21 years of my life, and then all of a sudden, with the stroke, I lost it completely. Um, of course, that would be life-changing. You can only imagine. Um, I had to learn to do everything all over again, being legally blind. Um, so it felt like a child, once again, learning the basics, life skills, and it took a lot of determination, and I'll say it wasn't easy. <laughs> There's definitely lots of challenges along the way, um, but learning to get around in mobility as well as doing things on my own as far as getting dressed and daily life skills, that you things that we take for granted. Um, after I became used to my vision loss, um, I was able to return to school, as you said, and then I dealt with all the different things society had based on me, and that's like people feeling sorry for you as well as uh, feeling that you can't do what you put your mind to because of your vision loss. Um, I knew that that wasn't true, and I know there's many others out there are very capable of doing things with vision loss, and I wanted to definitely make a difference and um, help people, so I took my blind part one from teaching so that I could specialize in helping teach visually impaired individuals. Great. Stuart, please tell us about the history of the California School for the Blind. Uh, well, thank you, Gordon. Uh, you know, it's a real pleasure to be with you and to meet Melanie in this way as well. Um, the uh, California School for the Blind, uh, we're celebrating our 150th year this year, so we're very proud of the history of our school. Um, we started in 1860 in San Francisco when a handful of people who wanted to um, help educate 
students, uh, children who were blind uh, and deaf got together and started a, a small program. And it's grown since then to now um, we're a statewide um, organization that uh, not only serves youngsters on our campus, but, but uh, does outreach to serve youngsters throughout the state and school districts to help support uh, children who uh, can be educated in their local school district uh, because the, uh, the, the idea is to keep kids with their families and in their communities as much as possible. So um, we're, we're uh, very, like as I said, very proud of our of our history. We're now in Fremont, California. The school was in Berkeley for 115 years before moving to Fremont in 1980. So we're celebrating 30 years in Fremont and 150 years of service. And the California School for the Blind, as it, as it is the case in many of the states in the United States, was the first program for uh, any children with disabilities in the state and became a model for other uh, disability groups when looking to provide service for uh, youngsters who were not able to get the traditional education in their home schools. Now, I'm going to follow on with Melanie and ask you, Melanie, to tell us about the history of the Connect Learning Center. We do understand, though, that you've not been around quite as long as the California School of the Blind, but nevertheless, you have a history. Please tell us. Okay, definitely not as long. I hope to be. Um, we, um, how the idea came, as you said, I attended this life-changing program through the Canadian National Institute for the Blind, and really it was such a vibrant, passionate place that helped me along to learn those skills. And one day I said I definitely wanted to offer that service to not only individuals with vision loss, but other individuals with disabilities because it was such a life-changing experience for myself. Um, I went to teacher's college and did all that fun stuff along the way, but never lost hope that one day I would get it done. And then I had surgery, brain surgery in November and realized life is too short. That was time to make a difference. You know, I had spoken to many people with uh, disabilities over the years, and they stressed about wanting to be independent and learning life skills so that they could live an independent lifestyle, as well as uh, not knowing where to get the services. And by creating Connect Learning Center, it's a one-stop shopping. They'll learn all the life skills that they need, as well as hopefully that we'd be providing them with that positive and passionate environment that they can definitely excel in. Now, we're beginning to run into a time problem. So, Stuart, I'm going to ask you just quickly to say um, something about the work of your blind that relates to what Mellon has been through. Do you see students in your school um, that have been through the kind of history that Mellon has been through? Uh, yes, we certainly have. And as a matter of fact, one of, the, uh, one of our real goals is to prepare uh, children for, for life um, beyond the regular academic core curriculum. We call it an expanded core curriculum for children who are blind or visually impaired, and it adds all of the uh, independent living skills, social skills, recreation and leisure skills, career awareness kinds of skills that are not necessarily taught in, in uh, regular schools. We even have an apartment complex on our campus where uh, where youngsters can learn to live with live independently with a roommate while they still have a safety net of our staff to help them out. It's for students who are 18 and older who may have completed all of their academic requirements but are not really ready for uh, higher education or employment or independent living quite yet, need another year or two of support in, in that way. Yeah, so in other words, you are in what many ways paralleling what Melanie um, is, is just embarking on doing. Is that right? 
Uh, yes, I, I believe so. Uh, the, the difference for us is because we're funded through the education system in the states, we can only serve youngsters until they hit uh, 21 to 22 years of age, and, uh, and then uh, the education system drops away. So uh, Melanie may have the opportunity to serve people um, um, into their 20s, which would be very valuable. Right. Now it is time for us to take the break, and I'm to just remind us that this is Dr. Gordon Avley and my two guests are Melanie Cooper and Dr. Stuart Wittenstein. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please stay with us. We will definitely be back. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Listen for Trust Across America every week on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in as host Jordan Kimmel is joined by national experts in the fields of accounting, finance, organizational behavior, and sustainability, as well as companies that are applying strategies that are enabling them to be recognized as doing the right thing by the American Trust Awards. Your host, Jordan Kimmel, is himself a trusted professional with years of experience in applying strategies and consulting with today's leading firms. Trust Across America is heard Wednesdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Are you sick and tired of get-rich-quick schemes and quick solution promises? There are countless droves of so-called experts who will offer to help you invest in anything from real estate to personal fitness, but at a premium price. Host Dave Lindahl offers a different approach, a personal one. Dave can show you how anyone, in any situation, can start making money wherever they are through his coaching and education. All you have to do to get started is tune in. Dave Lindahl's Creative Success Alliance, Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now, he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show, Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. You know I need someone. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at mymonami.com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and our two guests, Melanie Cooper and Dr. Stuart Wittenstein. Our topic is turning vision challenges into visible successes. Now, I want to go, in, go into some of the background on the training um, that is provided for people with vision challenges. And I want to start with Stuart and ask him just to carry on talking about the things that he was mentioning uh, really in parallel with um, Melanie's experience and please could you broaden that to tell us about the types of vision challenges of the students 
who attend your school. Uh, yeah, thanks, Gordon. Uh, I'd be glad to. Um, the the real challenge for us is to meet the needs of our state and the, and the children in our state, and that changes with time. It changes as medical technology improves and the causes of blindness keeps uh, changing. Um, for example, there was a period of time when a lot of youngsters were born deaf-blind because uh, their mothers had contracted rubella, and uh, so we had a, a very large deaf-blind program at our school. Now the um, the major uh, cause of blindness that we see is very premature babies, low birth weight babies. And uh, these youngsters come to us with a variety of um, medical issues and other disabilities in, in, um, in addition to their visual impairment. So uh, that's probably 60% of our youngsters now have other disabilities as, uh, in addition to their visual impairment, which is a very challenging population, as you can imagine. And the um, school districts can educate um, uh, some of the children depending on their, their experience and expertise, but they refer to us when they feel like they don't have an appropriate program for their, for their child. And, um, and so we get to sometimes the, uh, some of the most uh, interesting and complex issues to deal with with youngsters because they might have a neurological cause of their visual impairment and which also affects their other learning modalities. Um, so it's a it's a wide range of of uh, youngsters with with a lot of various needs and uh, really uh, uh, keep us on our toes. But first and foremost, they're children and they're kids, and we're looking for ways to give them a good education and give them a secure and safe environment and um, and have some fun as well. Great, Melanie. Please tell us about the types of vision challenges of the people, children, adults adults who attend or will be attending your training center. Okay, of course. Um, now, it is for adults 18 eight years of age and older. Um, Connect, Learning Services, um, Connect Learning Center Services is for that age group. Um, I can only speak of the ones that have shown interest so far, as you said, we just opened. Um, a lot of them are coming with vision loss due to um, strokes. We have some that were born with low vision. Um, we do have one individual that has a dual diagnosis that um, has, you know, developmental disability as well as vision loss. So basically any of the individuals with vision loss are wanting to learn how to do life skills safely and properly with their vision loss. That right. could be cooking, cleaning, computer skills, that sort of thing. Right. Stuart, I'm going to ask you now about the teaching methods you use and in particular what use you make of computer technology. Uh, uh, yeah, thank you. Um, the, well, f first and foremost, everything begins with assessment. We need to find out where where a child is at and what their uh, needs are. And so, we have a um, uh, an outstanding assessment team here at the California School for the Blind, and they also assess youngsters from around the state uh, where where there are questions about why they're not making progress or if they're making progress. And that's the team that wrote the collaborative assessment textbook you were you were mentioning earlier. We um, we we make a lot of use of assistive technology in a variety of ways. Uh, a lot of our youngsters are using uh, braille note taking devices, uh, screen reading devices to uh, to access uh, uh, personal computers, and um, and then for our for our kids who are the most multiply dis disabled, they're using technology that helps them speak helps them make choices. Uh, so the, the computer technology is, is really remarkable these days. And as far as um, 
getting folks ready for employment, the assistive technology really levels the playing field for blind people in, in, in very new ways. They can assess, access information uh, on a very timely uh, basis, which was not always possible before. If you were blind, you couldn't read a daily newspaper. Now you can go on the Internet and, and get the same information that everyone else is getting. And, and so it's a real wonderful equalizer for those who are able to make use of the technology. Right. Melanie, it's really the same question. Um, you know, what are the training methods you're going to be using, and in particular, what use are you going to make of computer technology? Very similar to what Stuart just said, assessment is the key. We have to find out what the needs of our clients are and what devices they're used to using and adapt that to what they're going to be doing here as the daily life skills training progresses. We um, have programs such as ZoomText, which is a large print and speech program for the computer, as well as JAWS, which is a speech program to assist with the computer training aspect of it, as well as we do have closed-circuit television CCTVs that are available for them to read documents that are in written. Uh, we will be providing basic Braille training for those individuals that are interested. I'm very fortunate to have a couple of staff members on team that are also trained in teaching the blind, so they will be helping me with those aspects as well. Okay. Now, let's look to the future. Stuart, what generally are the career paths for your students when they leave the school? You know, one of the things that I have seen in my 35-plus uh, uh, years uh, in, in uh, education of blind and visually impaired students is a, 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 a huge widening of the opportunities for these students when they leave school. When I started, we, we limited kids to about three or four or five um, uh, occupations that we thought that they were capable of doing. And the, uh, um, the, the technology and the techniques that, that we've developed and, um, and the belief in uh, blind people and their potential has really um, enabled us to, to save the sky's the limit, uh, um, if you will. I mean, other than the jobs that are completely visual, such as driving a truck and, or flying an airplane, we, we pretty much uh, let the youngsters tell us where their passion is, what they're interested in, and we look for ways to try to um, make those things happen for them and, and steer them towards the kind of training and experience that they will need to be able to do this. Uh, most of our students have jobs, uh, paying jobs, while they're still um, on our campus, and it's a very important uh, piece of of our curriculum and, and to emphasize how important it is to be self-sufficient, to be employable, and to be a part of, uh, uh, to be a citizen of your community in that way. Melanie, same, same question. Career paths for your trainees, the adults, when they leave your center. Well, as you know, as I've proven, anybody with a visual impairment can do anything that they put their mind to it. Everybody has different passions and loves and desires to do different things. And as Stuart said, obviously we're not going to go out and get driving jobs and um, be pilots. But uh, I think society is slowly starting to get the message that although the people have vision loss, they're still very capable. I know a number of blind lawyers, um, some visually impaired doctors. You know, there really is no limit. So I would encourage all of my clients to pursue any angle and any dream that they have because, you know, once you put your mind to something, despite your disability, you're definitely able to accomplish it. Melanie, I'm going to ask you this question. I first found out about your training center from a newspaper article, and it quoted your mother. 
Now, that leads me to a question. What you see, Melanie, is the role of the family, the family caregiver, the moms, uh, the rest of the family, in helping people like you fulfill their dreams and move forward. What do you see the, what do you see the role of the family um, caregiver? How, you know, it's funny because as caregivers, and I'm just speaking based on what my mother's told me, it's like, especially if it's an adult or a child, I guess, you're always protective of your, your child and you want to make sure what's best for them. So sometimes you're afraid to let go and let that individual explore their needs and what they need to want to do independently. So not only are they there to support you and you know, cheer you on on the sidelines, but, you know, you really just need to give them the space to try different things, even if it's going to freak you out or really make you panic. I know my mom uses the example the first time I crossed a busy intersection being legally blind. She said she couldn't watch, and she was petrified, and she didn't want me to have orientation mobility skills. I was 21. I had gone through the childhood already, but here I was having to go through it all over again, learning to do it blind. Slowly but surely, she started to let go a little bit, um, and I give her, you know, all the credit for that. Not only did she have to suffer seeing me go through all the changes that I was enduring, but she had to deal with it herself. And a lot of people don't realize what caregivers go through and the emotional impact it has on them. Not only are they trying to make our lives easier by helping, but they really need to address how they're feeling. It's so important. So I guess my advice to caregivers is definitely love us as much as you possibly can, but yet be be willing to let go just a little to let us try things. The only way we're going to learn is if we make mistakes. And, you know, they're not always going to be tragic mistakes. They may just be little ones. You know, if you, oh, my goodness, somebody honked as I'm crossing that street. It's just so important to, you know, let us try these different things. But without caregivers and without my mother, I wouldn't be where I am today. And I'm sure many people feel that way as well. Do you see the same sorts of things that Melanie's just been talking about? Yeah, I think Melanie's right on with this advice to families. Um, uh, one of the um, uh, things we see is is families trying to do too much and trying to protect their child too much. And children need to explore their world and their environment. And it's understandable that you'd be afraid that with a blind child they're going to get hurt. But it's the way we develop concepts and it's the way we find out about ourselves and the, and our environment. So there's a certain amount of risk-taking that a child has to do, and it must be very, very difficult for parents to uh, to let go and, and let them take those chances. But but the kids have to fall down and, and scrape their knees sometimes, whether they're sighted or blind. Um, and we work very closely and collaboratively with families on the educational planning, um, and uh, but and some of them they need to learn to trust us as well when we do things like have the kids go sea kayaking on the San Francisco Bay, which we which we do. So it's uh, you know it, th- those kinds of experiences are are so memorable and develop so many different kinds of concepts for youngsters. Um, that uh, it's very important for later in life to be able to say, "Hey, I could do that. I could do. I can do anything." Um, and um, so it's it's very valuable for families to uh, to understand um, that they they need to allow their children to take some risks. Right. Now it is time for us to take the break again. We have to pay the rent. Um, this is Dr. Gordon Atherley. My guests are Melanie Cooper and Dr. Stuart Wittenstein. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please do come back. 
um, because we have a lot more to do. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. It's always 5 o'clock somewhere. Thursdays at 5 Eastern Time, be sure to tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel for Cocktails for Everyone with host Catherine Stanton Schiff. Catherine will take you behind the scenes of your favorite beer, wine, and spirit brands, the people that create them, and the restaurants that serve them. The program will keep you on the pulse of the beverage industry and may even keep you a step ahead of the bartender. Cocktails for Everyone airs live Thursdays at 5 Eastern Time, that's 2 Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You know I need someone. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at my. M-O-N-A-M-I dot com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and our two guests, Melanie Cooper and Dr. Stuart Wittenstein. Our topic is turning vision challenges into visible successes. So let's talk about some of the decision-making and some of the cost issues. And first of all, with Melanie... What kind of advice do you give to persons with vision challenges and their families who are thinking about attending your training center? Basically to educate themselves as much as possible about the different programs that are out there and what's right for them. There's so many different areas that people want to make sure that they're attending the right program and it's suitable for the individual. Um, Education knowledge is power and it's very important to be up to date on the latest and greatest stuff. Hmm. Let me now um, ask really Stuart the same question, but the typical question is that the school as a school and you personally are asked by families with children who have vision challenges of the type you've just been talking about. Well, uh, families um, of very young blind children, um, uh, often their child is the first person they've ever met that has a visual impairment, and they don't know how... Uh, they don't know that there's a network of professionals and that there are laws to, to protect them in the United States and that there are, um, there, there are so many different options available to them. So they, sometimes they don't even know what to ask, and so it's very important that we begin the conversation. But the other piece of it, the emotional side of, of it, is that all parents, I believe, have dreams for what's, what their kid's life is going to be. And they see the blindness, the visual impairment as having dashed those dreams. And they want reassurances. Will my child um, uh, go to college? Will my child 
and be able to have a job? Will my child be able to have a family of his or her own when they get older? And so it's very, very important that we, we give them as much information of the, about the successful blind people that, that we know, that we've seen happen. We've seen our graduates go on to do great things and to become um, productive citizens of their community. Uh, they they need to they need to see that their dreams are still viable. Uh, the, the, their child, as Melanie was saying, the, the blind people can do pretty much anything that sighted people can do, but they do it differently. And uh, and so the the families need to understand that. But the families also need to understand that to some extent their their job is going to be uh, to be a, a lifelong advocate for their child because the the systems though there are protections in them they don't always work the way you want and and you you really need to be out there kind of kind of uh, swinging in the fight for your child to make sure that they get what they deserve and they need because um, it's it's an important uh, participatory. Um, uh, element of being a family member of, of a, a child who's blind or visually impaired. Right. Melanie, talking about the adults that are coming to your um, center, what are the challenges that their families um, face, so far as you know? Lack of programs. In our area of Peel region, there's very few programs that are provided. As you said, um, I think it's short that said it, after they're finished their schooling at age 21, they're kind of said, okay, you've completed your education, now it's time to move on. And not knowing where to go to get those new services that they need, so that's where the research and educating themselves with the different programs. And as Stuart had said, be an advocate for yourself and for your the loved one to make sure that they do get all those services that they need. And also a part of that is uh, being realistic and knowing what is realistic and achievable and all of that stuff. Um, they just really, so far, have just really stressed that there's the lack of problems and not getting the information. Nobody really volunteers the information that they're looking for. So that's hopefully how we're going to help them by connecting them with existing programs in the, in the community. All right. Stuart, still on the question of programs, but you mentioned... Um, professionals and the, the network of professionals out there. I'm a physician, or I was. Um, do you think that professionals generally, and physicians in particular, are well enough informed and briefed about the kind of family and individual challenges that are faced by the, first of all, the children that they go through your school, and then what they face as adults after they've left the school? What do you think? Well, you know, a lot of families tell us that their physicians really didn't know what was available for their child uh, in the education system and weren't weren't as helpful. Uh, they saw the the blindness or the visual impairment, especially, this especially coming from ophthalmologists, as being a, a failure. Uh, you know, in, in some ways, and, and that they couldn't. Um, help the youngster and didn't know where to refer them. So one of the things that educators are really trying to do is to connect with um, uh, with physicians in uh, neonatal units and um, in um, uh, uh, for for those uh, low birth weight babies that we were speaking of before to let the physicians know that there are uh, organizations like Blind Babies Foundation here in uh, San Francisco. That can um, that can really begin working with families at a, almost right away 
in order to make a difference in their lives. So that connection between education and medicine is is very, very valuable for youngsters that have this um, um, visual impairment and are identified right away. And, of course, as Melanie was saying, people can have vision loss at any age. And we've, we have teenagers come to us who, are, um, who have uh, uh, eye conditions that come on suddenly or, or come on through trauma, such as a car accident or gunshot wound. And that's a whole different set of challenges for both the youngster and the family. So it's you know there there needs to be more of a connection um, with the with the medical profession. One of the issues is that this is a very low incidence disability or low prevalence disability, and so so a lot of physicians um, and a lot of educators haven't dealt with someone who's visually impaired and blind, and they don't know where to go or how to refer uh, to families. And uh, so that that's a, an additional challenge um, uh, for us uh, th- throughout, because um, even if we train someone, um, the, the odds are they're not going to have a, 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 an opportunity to use that training uh, again because it's such a small population. Right. I'm going to ask Melanie essentially the same question. That is, um, as far as the professionals are concerned, that you know about through your work or through your own experience, um, were they well enough informed? And um, do you agree with Stuart that more needs to be done to inform them? What do you think? Absolutely, I agree 100% with Stuart. Um, through my own experiences, uh, people didn't know what to offer me, where for, uh, for me to go. Um, there was very little education sharing and information sharing amongst professionals. Um, of course, I had dual. I had a stroke as well as vision loss, so that was rare in itself for a lot of the people. And again, this was 15 years ago, so medic- medicine and the different industries have come so far in 15 years. But at the time, nobody offered information. You had to find it on yourself. And my family and I didn't know where to look. And that's why a huge component of what I'm going to offer here at Connect Learning Center is connecting people with the information so they don't have to search high and low for it, but it will be at their fingertips because if you know what you're looking for and what your needs are, as well as I'm going out to these different agencies and to the medical field and saying this is who we are, this is what we're doing, because if we put that information out there, then the word is going to get to families and individuals that need our services. Right. Now, I'm going to change the topic a little bit um, with, with uh, Melanie again. In this work you're doing, creating the center and working with the trainees, what are the things that really, really make the sun shine for you? Well, definitely, I'd have to say, is watching individuals p- progress and achieve their goals. Um, from my previous teaching experience to everyday successes, that I watch my coworkers and individuals in my life who are visually impaired, it is amazing to see them put their mind to something and try it once, and you know maybe they don't get it the first time or the second time, but for them finally that third or fifth time, they get it and a smile on their face, and then seeing somebody come and thanking you. It's not about the thanks, but just knowing that you've made a difference in their lives, whether it's just giving them the encouragement and cheering them on, I say I'm the biggest cheerleader there is because I just love to watch people succeed at what they put their minds to. Same question. What are the things in your work at the school or in your broad field of work 
that really make the sunshine for you? Well, a very similar answer to Melanie's, but let me give you some specifics. First of all, I've always worked in schools, and I can't imagine not. I, I, I love being around kids and seeing them progress and grow. And um, we do a thing we call short courses where kids come in to us for a week. They come in on Sunday night and they leave on Friday afternoon to learn a very specific blindness skill. But all of the kids are expected to learn their way around our campus, which is about 25 acres. And at the end of the week, they may have learned how to read a, a tactile graph or to do something in mathematics or in, or in independent living skills. But on Sunday when they get here, they, um, they're, they're going to shock that we expect them to learn their way from the dormitory to the dining hall to their classroom because in a lot of cases the kids are overprotected and they, they don't have that experience in their own neighborhood or their home school. And by Friday, the thing they're proudest of is that is that they've learned to to uh, to independently make you know make their roots around our campus and learn their way around. So it's that kind of um, helping a youngster see what their own potential is, what their own abilities are, that is so exciting. Um, one of the other things that we see is that. Youngsters in their home school are quite often the only blind child in a regular school, and everybody knows them as you know David the blind kid, uh, for example. But they don't they don't necessarily the, the the youngster himself David doesn't get to see where he kind of fits in in the social strata. When they come to our school, where everybody's blind or visually impaired, that kind of that element is taken out of the mix, and they start to learn about whether they're popular or a good athlete, or they tell jokes, or they're good at, with computers, or or whatever their particular skills and how they fit in with their peers, that kind of stratification that happens in a regular school to everybody, a lot of blind and visually impaired kids haven't experienced. So it's really neat to see that happen and to see those ideas awaken in them as far as where they fit in with their peers. And uh, I wanted to say one last thing about Melanie's thing about cheerleading. It reminded me of a story. Can I just interrupt you and say, let's start the next... Let's start back in the fourth segment with that uh, reminiscence because we're up against break time, but I'll give you the chance to uh, bring us back to that. All right, thank you. Okay, no worries. Now it is time for the break. Uh, This is Dr. Gordon Adley, and my guests are Melanie Cooper and Dr. Stuart Wittenstein. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please stay tuned. We are coming back. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Income Property Investment Talk with Peter Mosca and Dean Issa provides homeowners and investors eager to invest well in real estate the knowledge, resources, and tools necessary to generate significant wealth. Our focus will be the paradigm. Live where you want invest where it makes the most sense listen live to the brightest minds in real estate investment every wednesday morning at 8 a.m pacific on the voice america business channel that's income property investment talk with peter mosca and dean isa where america learns to invest stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com you know i need someone You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. 
If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at M-Y-M-O-N-A-M-I dot com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and our two guests, Melanie Cooper and Dr. Stuart Wittenstein. Our topic is turning vision challenges into visible successes and family caregiving. Now, I interrupted Stuart for the break um, when he was just about to bring out an experience that uh, was highly relevant. Stuart, please carry on with that. Well, thank you, Gordon. And, you know, I, I, uh, I, I do get kind of enthusiastic about uh, the stories about our students uh, because they're, um, they're, they're why we do the work, and, and there's no doubt about that. But what I, what I was uh, uh, alluding to was Melanie talked about being a cheerleader to, um, uh, to her clients um, in her center to uh, help them um, um, to progress. And it, the word cheerleading reminded me of a story. We had a visit from a state commission on special education at our school, and um, several of our students got to address the commission and explain why they uh, liked uh, being at a special school. And one of our students was on our cheerleading squad, and one of the commissioners said, well, that must be a great opportunity, and I bet you couldn't be a cheerleader in your home school district because of your visual impairment. And the youngster says, no, I was a cheerleader in my home school district, but the difference here, uh, well, the difference there at my home school district was that when, um, when important people or the press would come to the, and, and see us at an athletic event, the uh, superintendent of schools would take them over and, and introduce me as, here's our blind cheerleader. And she said, now here at the School for the Blind, I'm just another cheerleader, and that's what I like. And so it was, it was this kind of moving kind of thing, like I don't want to be the token blind cheerleader. I want to be a cheerleader. I want to participate. And this school has given me the opportunity to do that. And uh, you, you, the, the kids say things that, um, that um, uh, sometimes professionals and, and, and family members don't get because their perspective is, uh, is, is a unique one that we, we really need to listen to. Yeah, absolutely right. Now, I'm going into... Um, a a bigger, a bigger issue now in, the, in this last segment. Um, as everybody knows, these are difficult economic times. And so I'd like you to talk about meeting the needs of children and adults with vision challenges and, and their families too, the needs of their families. Um, because um, we need, I think, to be sure that the case is always made for the kind of work that you've both been talking about and both are doing. So to get the message out, um, meeting the needs, what more must be done, how should it be done, and who should do it? And Melanie, I'm going to ask you to go first. What are the things you would like to recommend and why? Um, the funding opportunities that are available to individuals with vision loss and for the programs that support them needs to be more readily accessible. Um, the governments need to step up and do more for these programs because as, like you have it during school and all that's covered by you know government funding and the cost. Everybody cannot afford these specialized programs. And yes, we're very fortunate to have the Canadian National Institute for the Blind that can provide these services for them, but it's on a, you know, at a couple hours a week. By having a center-based approach, you're able to do more in a, you know, a 
individualized and intensive program. But unfortunately, there's not funding out there that's well known about for these programs, and that's what I'd say definitely would have to change. Right. Stuart, what's your answer to the question? Well, what are the things you recommend? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think I think we're, we are seeing a big impact on the economies having on services to youngsters in, in our state and in the United States. And what we're seeing is <clears throat> caseloads of teachers increasing to the point where they can't get the, the level of service to kids that that is really needed because it is more expensive to educate a child who's blind or visually impaired and we just have to deal with that fact and it's not about the uh, technology though technology is ex- expensive it's the people because you need a lot of uh, intensive instruction sometimes one-on-one instruction in order for youngsters to get uh, the services that they need to give you an example, um, Braille literacy is a particular passion of mine. And if you think about a young blind child, they they don't have the opportunities that a sighted child has to see print everywhere and to interact with it. Even when they're not reading, they see their parents reading or they see print on television or on billboards or in newspapers. And they know that those little curvy symbols have meaning. A blind child will often start school without having encountered Braille. So they're already maybe developmentally a year or two behind, and they need intensive instruction, and yet they're in a, in most cases, they're in a school where there isn't much Braille. Everything is, everything is in print, and the only time they get Braille is when the teacher of the blind is there with them directly making sure that that's happening. And that takes people. That takes a lot of time. Um, and, um, and you know, you might say, well, it's, uh, I, I think part of, Part of what we need to do is we need to uh, let this, let society know how much potential blind people have and how much success they can have if we give them the appropriate instruction at a young age. The fact is, if you don't think blind people are capable of, uh, of, of performing at, at a sophisticated level, maybe you think, well, why should we spend all that money on their education? But we know that blind people can be successful if we get them the right uh, skills and the right attitudes and, um, you know, teaching someone to read Braille is expensive. Having someone be illiterate is more expensive. Having someone be unemployed is even more expensive. And we need to front-load our investment in kids and make sure that, that, uh, that we're, we're turning out productive citizens by spending the money that needs to be spent. Right. This is an investment you're talking about, isn't it? Uh, exactly. Yeah. Melanie, what's your view on what Stuart's just been saying? Everything he just said just kind of gave me shivers because it's so true. That's what we're trying to accomplish here because we want, as, as, as speaking as an individual being disabled, um, being legally blind, I want to be contributing to society and I want to be able to do everything that an, as you quote-unquote say, normal individual, sighted individual can do. And if my resources are limited to learn these skills and be able to teach these skills and go forward and develop individuals that can contribute more to the community, it in turn will definitely be a hindrance on the government and people that are providing the funding um, because it's going to be more expensive, as Stuart said. So, again, it is definitely investment, investment in education and training, investment in people's lives. I've got a special interest in the question I'm just going to ask you, obviously, because um, I'm now involved in you know, through this internet radio talk show in what's called new media. My question to you both 
um, starting with Melanie, is this. What more use do you see of the new media? And some of it is visual, um, and, but a lot of it is what we're doing now, talking, or is print. How do you see the future and rolling, uh, rolling out in a way that's going to help create these attitude changes, create this sense that more investment is not just needed, it's absolutely essential, as well as being fundamentally fair. Melanie, what about technology? Well, like you're sure, Gordon, you're reaching a huge, diverse population of people that may not be familiar with vision loss, and we're educating people as we speak right now. Um, so radio broadcasting, we're reaching those that can't read or are not able to see the computer to go through it, um, but we're reaching in different medias. So not only with um, you know technology changing drastically, radio, broadcast, television, as well as online and media, um, whether it's through communicating newspapers, newsletters, um, just getting the word out there, things change so drastically, and as long as we keep up with the times and as technology changes, we'll be able to keep the education and the information flowing, and I think it'll just definitely enhance everybody's lives. Okay. Stuart, what do you think? Same question. New media, what role do you see for it? Well, I, you know, I, I, I agree with Melanie that, that the, this provides access to a lot of people who wouldn't ordinarily have access. And so audit, the auditory uh, media is, is terrific. And, and the using screen reading technology or screen enlargement technology has been a boon for, for people who are blind or visually impaired. The, um, the real challenge for me, I think, is, is to raise awareness uh, across society about the potential of blind people. It's something the Council of Schools for the Blind tries to do. I think the, um, the organizations of the blind in the United States, like the National Federation of the Blind, American Council of the Blind, do a much better job because it's blind people speaking for themselves and getting some media attention to let uh, let the society at large know um, that blind people have um, have potential and have have uh, great lives and and um, and can do things and because uh, I really believe that society thinks of blind people as helpless and if we um, if, if you think of someone as helpless, you're not going to hire them for a job. You want somebody who's going to help your company move forward or help your nonprofit uh, move its uh, mission forward. So it's very, very important that society learn uh, that blind people are vital, uh, important um, uh, people uh, and participants in our society and, and can be uh, very successful uh, employees and, and entrepreneurs and uh, scientists and teachers and Mathematicians, uh, it's it's a um, it, it's a it's a real challenge to get that word out and to make the uh, the media um, grab hold of it. The uh, the new media, uh, there's so much competition for uh, for uh, for who's going to get attention. It's it's uh, it's vital that we we find ways to get this message out. Well, um, I'll make a comment in the end about what I hope we'll do with this particular episode, but I just want to make a very quick comment about. Um, physicians, and this is true across North America and more widely, and that is that the, the family doctor more and more is being seen as the support for the family and the family caregiver. Now, I don't think they've gone down that road anything like as far as they need to go, but I do think there's a bit of a bridge there that can be built in such a way that, um, you know, I will 
if I dare make a suggestion, that uh, reaching out to the family doctors in local communities and saying, um, Here's a, here are the kind of things that um, we think will bridge between you and the families you take care of, that might be a good message. So uh, with that, I'm going to, unfortunately, draw this, con- this to an end by saying that I really do hope that this Internet radio broadcast, this episode, will help both of you in the superb work you're doing. So with that, I'm going to say thank you to our listeners and encourage them to email us with comments, questions. Um, The ads that come up will give you the address to email to, and I'll be very happy to pass the questions and comments on to our two guests. So again, thank you to Melanie Cooper and Dr. Stuart Wittenstein. You've shared with us your experience, your insights, your advice, and your commitment to the work you're doing and your powerful sense of what needs to be done in the sense of making the best use of human beings and human talent. All success to you both. Thank you, sir. You're very welcome, both of you. Now, in our next episode, we're going to talk about family caregivers helping other family caregivers. Please join us, same time, same spot on the internet. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And I do appreciate you being Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.